All right, well, today we begin uh, in the book of James in the teaching segment. Steve did a great job with the overview of the book of James last week, and I want to encourage you to read the book of James um, at least once a week during the series. It's going to be about a seven-week series, and uh, it's a short book, so it's an easy read, and it's actually a very practical read. So I just want to encourage you, if you read about half a chapter a day, you'll get through it once a week, and just have the words of James and the Word of God, you know, uh, fill you and fill your life and really have an impact. And then when we get together to study it in more detail, uh, it could mean a lot more. So, so go through the book of James in your own time, in your own time in God's Word and with your family, and uh, I think you'll be blessed by that. So we're beginning with the very first teaching segment of James, which is a doozy. He goes right into uh, suffering and talking about how to live in suffering and a perspective going through suffering. So it gets real serious real fast. Now I want to give you a couple of disclaimers as we start this uh, section of James chapter 1. Uh, number one is I no doubt am going to say at least one thing that you're not going to agree with or have some problem with. And I just want to tell you that's totally fine. That's actually great. Uh, I love our, our messages here being discussion starters. And so uh, there is no obligation to believe or agree with everything the pastors uh, say around here. It's a learning community, so we can have discussions, we can disagree. Uh, one of the great things I love about Rancho is I hear often, hey, our small group had a great discussion, and some people totally agreed, and some people disagreed, and we had our Bibles open, and we wrestled through this together. I love that. To me, that is like the pinnacle of church life, just getting God's Word, you know, uh, around tables and just start having fun. So you're not going to agree with some things I'm going to say tonight, which is fine, totally okay. I actually appreciate that. Number two is we're talking about suffering, but I have not really suffered intensely. I have not really suffered intensely. I've, I've had some struggles in my life. I would put them in the normal category, and I just started writing down some of the struggles I, I've had over the years. The first real trial I went through was in middle school when my mom came into my room and said that one of my good friends had died in a terrible drowning accident. And of course, you hear about death and you talk about death, but until you experience it for the first time as a young person, uh, it really doesn't mean much. And I will never forget that time my mom walked in and told me that my friend had died. Uh, I had some struggles growing up at home. I've been very clear, open, and honest about that, about my dad's alcoholism and the impact that had on my brother and I and their marriage and many times uh, splitting up and threatening divorce and some chaos in there. But I never doubted that my parents loved me and they really stuck it out and right now they're doing great. I had some self-image and insecurity problems growing up, but who didn't, right? Everybody did. I'm the skinny kid who stuttered. I didn't really have my place in, in, in sort of the, you know, the schoolyard and, and didn't really um, excel at much of anything. And so I was just kind of lost there in those adolescent years. And, uh, but I think that's fairly normal. Uh, I lost all four grandparents, uh, one pretty young. But, um, you know, losing all four grandparents when you're as elderly as me is not particularly unusual. Uh, probably the biggest trial of my life was a cancer diagnosis about seven years ago. And that cancer diagnosis comes in stages, as all cancers do, one, two, three, and four, and some subcategories in there. And I remember the week between the diagnosis and the staging of that cancer was the longest week of my life because stage one meant a 95% survival. Stage four meant a 5% survival. And so getting that, that phone call from the doctor and laying out a treatment plan, that was a long wait. And of course, I had uh, four very young kids, and, uh, and I was imagining what would happen if they lost their, lost their father. And that was pretty difficult. Call came in, it was stage one, actually a very easy treatment plan, and I uh, was uh, in remission. 
Um, I got a checkup about two years ago, and they just, you know, this particular cancer, they check chest and eyes and all that. And, and so I got an eye check, and, and uh, the doctor was looking at the eyes and said, oh, my. Now, that's not what you want to hear when you are getting a cancer screening. Oh, my. And so he says, well, we do have a little problem potentially. He says, there may be a tumor behind your left eye. And uh, I mean, my heart sank, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, that... And knowing what that means, it was just a brutal time. And then, of course, you're kicked to the specialist, and that takes a couple of weeks to get that appointment. He takes a look at it, does a few tests, does some imaging, and, uh, and then another week to hear back on what it is. And, and he says, you know what, that tiny little thing behind your eye is actually, it's your brain. It's just, it's just really, really tiny. Actually, in all seriousness, he, he says, there is something back there. It's an anomaly for sure. We'll keep an eye on it, but I think you're going to be fine. So that was just a, you know, very much a, a relief. When our uh, daughter was in utero, our youngest daughter was in utero, she had an umbilical cord deformity, which could have easily resulted in oxygen deprivation, which would have resulted in all kinds of potential harm to her. And uh, so that was uh, just an interesting thing we had to keep an eye on. That's a long several months, just wanting them to make sure that she's going to be okay, and she was. My mom and dad, a couple years ago, were both diagnosed with cancer at the same time, and uh, that created some scary possibilities, but uh, both of them uh, handled their treatment plans real well, and they're both in full, remiss full remission. Um, several years ago, uh, and I haven't told the church uh, this yet, it wasn't that big a deal in the end, but at the time I was going through it, it was pretty serious, I started getting chest tightening, uh, pain in my chest and tightening in the chest and accelerated heart, heart rate. Uh, multiple times a day, it just started happening. Kind of crept up on me, but when it, when it hit, it hit, and it was every single day. Now, my uh, grandfather that I lost when I was young, he died immediately of a heart attack, and so I thought, well, if this runs in the family and I've got some issues, I've got to get right in and take care of it. Uh, I'd rather be alive. And so I went to the doctor and checked my heart and uh, went through all the battery of tests there, and he says, you know what? You are uh, literally the strongest man on earth, the most virile um, man to ever live. So your heart is great, right? Your heart is absolutely great. Let's try to figure out something else that's going on. Figured out some other stuff and uh, nothing was coming. And finally, he just sat me down and he says, hey, listen, I think you're just having panic attacks, anxiety attacks. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Um, now, I, I know people that have panic attacks, and for some, they come on kind of at that mid-stage of life. I have a, a good friend of mine who's a pastor, and he gets panic attacks with public speaking, which is a little difficult for a pastor. And, and he sits in the chair before a service, and he has another pastor on the other side of, of, the, of the stage. If he experiences a panic, panic attack and can't come up on stage, he gives a signal to the other pastor who always has to have a sermon ready to go. And I'm thinking to myself, is that my future? Am I going to start having panic attacks here? But I just kind of owned it. I embraced it. And I just thought, okay, here we go. This is just going to be part of my, part of my world. I did, dealt with that for a couple years. And then one afternoon, I just noticed that this attack came right after a cup of coffee. <laughs> and as soon as that connection was made, I was angry. First, I was kind of happy that, oh, that, is it as simple as caffeine? Then I was really angry. The amount of doctor visits and tests I went, and it couldn't be this simple. Haven't had any caffeine since then, and I haven't had any of these feelings since then. So it was a difficult couple of years, but ended up to be nothing. Now, that's my list of struggles. A couple of things in there that were moderately serious, but really sort of in that normal category. And big picture, um, I've got no complaints. I've never had to look for work. I've never struggled to find a job. I've never worried about providing for my family. I have uh, a great marriage. Uh, we've had our challenges. We've been open about those here, but I have a great marriage. I have four you know, great kids who are healthy. 
I have a lot of love in my life from family, from friends, from my church and in the community. I just, I just feel like things are going pretty well. So I'm not coming to you in a message about struggling with this huge testimony that I could write a book about. I mean, it's pretty bread and butter, pretty vanilla experiences, right? So I don't have this, this depth of suffering. And some might say that, well, you know, you have a blessed life. And that's a word, it's a churchy word, and some people in church might look at a life that's going pretty well and say, okay, you're blessed. I'd rather remove that title from any of our lives that are going well. If we're going along in life and things are going fine, let's not put a blessed title on that. Because what that does is it says, okay, the people whose lives are doing well, they're blessed by God. Well, what does it mean about the people who are not doing so well? Are we, are we gonna say they're cursed, right? I mean, that's kind of rough, right? So, so let's not attach doing well with being blessed. Uh, being blessed in church circles, religious circles, also means most of the time that you have done something to earn that blessing. In fact, in most church circles, you know, you go to church and, and you might hear things like, listen, read the Bible and God will bless you. Pray and God will bless you. Volunteer and God will bless you. Give and God will bless you, right? This is the whole religious system that if we do what God expects us to do, then he will return the favor and bless our lives. It's sort of this transactional arrangement. We do for God, he does for us. That's just standard bread and butter religion and it's nonsense. Our lives do not go well because we have earned God's blessings. And our lives do not go poorly at times because we have somehow offended God. That is not the way it works. That's kind of the normal religious system, but that's not the way it really works. I'm gonna put it to you a couple of ways on the screen here. Whether someone in any given season of life is doing well or suffering intensely has nothing to do with whether someone appeases God by religious devotion or good works. A lot of religious people think that. If we appease God, life goes well. If we offend him, life goes poorly. A lot of us think that. I, I might even say that a lot of us in this room might think that. And so we live under the burden of religious works and religious duties, hope, hoping that God will bless our lives. It's just not the way it works. Um, let me put it another way. Prosperity or calamity comes and goes upon any particular person in any particular time in nonsensical ways, seemingly random with no rhyme or reason. Now, I know a lot of us would love to have all of this make sense. We want life to make sense. So if life is going well, we want to know why it goes well. If life goes well, well, it must be because we're blessed of God and we're blessed by God because we've done something good, we've done something right, we've lived well. And if somebody's life is going poorly, we want a reason why that life is going poorly, why that person is suffering intensely or that family is suffering intensely. We wanna know the reason why. But I'm telling you, there is no reason. Whether life goes well or whether life goes poorly happens in nonsensical ways, seemingly random with no rhyme or reason. And a lot of you guys might say, well, you know, that, I haven't heard that in church before. I thought there was some mystical, divine reason for all. I just don't think there is. And I'm not alone in that. The Bible says it a lot. And so we're getting this from God's word, particularly from the book of Psalms. About a third of the book of Psalms is written by people, artists, who are wrestling with why life is the way it is. Why is there so much injustice? Why do good people seem to run into calamity and why do bad people seem to prosper? Have you had that question yourself? I mean, there's a lot of injustice in this world and it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And the Bible expresses that it doesn't make any sense and doesn't give any answers. 
Here's one example in Psalm 73. Behold, and you can just imagine an angry artist writing this song, mad. Behold the ungodly, right? These people who are not religious and they're not trying to please God with their life and good works and devotion. These are the ungodly and they're always at ease and they increase in riches. How can that be? The psalmist is, is, is exasperated. How can that be? Then he goes on. By the way, I'm godly, right? This is what he says. I have cleansed my heart in vain. I'm trying to honor God. I'm trying to be religious. I'm trying to be good. Have I done that in vain and washed my hands in innocence? For all day long, I've been uh, plagued and chastened every morning. He says, I'm the one suffering. I'm living a, a good life. I'm, I'm trying to honor God, yet I'm the one suffering. And the unrighteous and the ungodly, they're prospering. doesn't make any sense. A lot of biblical authors are, 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 are pleading for some answers to life's injustice, and the answers do not come. They do not come. Now, as we wrestle through this reality, I want us to feel what we are going through as members of a family. As members of the church, we have a lot of people among us who are suffering intensely. They're suffering intensely, and, and they are perhaps reaching out for answers. Why is this happening to them? I'm going to give you a short list of the people who are suffering here at Rancho Community Church who are in service today, throughout the day. Here are some of the stories. Your wife left you and the kids, and you're heartbroken and lost and have no idea how you're going to manage it all. Your husband cheated on you. You want to leave, feel trapped, and you have no idea how or if you're going to forgive him. You're a victim of horrific abuse at the hands of a family member. You've told no one. You're a victim of rape, and there was no justice for the monster who did this to you. You were rejected and hurt by your father, who should have been the one to protect you and champion you instead. Your husband was recently killed in a freak accident, and you're struggling to find out why that could have happened. Your teenage son committed suicide. And you don't know how you're gonna go on. Your adult, child, your adult child is a heroin addict and slowly dying right before your eyes and you're running out of ways to help. You've been taking care of your husband for 10 years. He has his full mental faculties but has no use of his body or bodily functions. You've suffered with paralyzing depression for years, and at times you feel like you're being sucked into a dark hole with no possibility of escape. You lost both parents when you were young and can't quite fill the emptiness of this reality. This last year, your daughter was stillborn. You have a terminal disease, and your mind can't stop thinking about the fear and uncertainty ahead. You did something terrible in your past, and despite your efforts to make things right and seek redemption, the guilt you bear is crushing. Your children have rejected you and have not been in contact with you for years. You think about them every single day, wondering if their heart will ever turn back to you. Your wife of 54 years just passed away, and you feel no life and no future is ahead for you. You cry every night in loneliness, missing deeply your soulmate. I could go on for about an hour of all the stories that are happening, real suffering in Rancho Community Church. This is just our church. 
there is real pain, there is real anguish, there is real suffering taking place right here. And, and we also know there is real suffering globally, and we know those stories, right? We had a couple of fundraisers over this last week to highlight areas of the world and problems of the world that are heart-wrenching, including unimaginable child abuse and child labor and fatherless and motherless children who are absolutely on their own, child trafficking, sex trafficking, slavery, hunger, and disease that are preventable, a refugee crisis that has turned into a political football here in the United States of America, injustice, and, and cultural racism and class systems that are keeping people trapped in poverty and despair for their lives and for the generations to come. I mean, suffering is real, and it is powerful. And, and then we open the pages of James, and we see the very first teaching segment of James, and it says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter trials of many kinds. Now, in light of the weight of the suffering of this world and in light of the weight of the suffering just among us here at Rancho Community Church, I'm telling you, this doesn't sit right. At first reading, this verse doesn't sit right. It just seems like your standard, old, religious, trite, trivial, um, you know, pablum about suffering. Oh, it's just consider it joy. You know, turn that frown upside down. Put on a plastic religious smiley face and tell everybody things are fine or God is good, right? This just seems to trivialize the true seriousness of suffering. Consider it joy when you suffer. And so is this a trivialization of pain and suffering or is there something deeper here? Well, I'm gonna say there's something deeper for two reasons. Number one, we know James. James is the author of the book of James. James has a very specific history that is very well known. James is the brother of Jesus, and uh, it is pretty well established in church tradition, not necessarily history, but church tradition, that James wasn't a big fan of his older brother, Jesus. Would you be a fan of a, your older brother if he was absolutely perfect in every way, right? Who broke of the pot? Jesus did it. What? I didn't do it. He's lying. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. You broke the pot. Okay, busted, Right. It would be pretty aggravating to grow up with the, um, you know, son of God. So James wasn't a big fan of, of Jesus until Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus rose from the dead and visited, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people and taught them the kingdom of heaven and equipped them and sent them out to advance the cause of Christ, James being among them. So when your perfect resurrected brother comes to you and says, hey, I got a plan to redeem the entire world, James thought to himself, wisely so, I better get on with this program. Followed Jesus Christ, became a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, uh, and we know his heart. He was called James the Just. He really grabbed onto the heart of Christ to tackle injustice, to go to war against suffering. And so he took a vow of poverty and he took a, a vow to live a life of suffering among the people who suffer. And so we know James wouldn't trivialize suffering. He gave his entire life to walk with people who suffered. James the Just. We also know that as James writes this, even though the English translation feels like a little bit of a trivialization of suffering, we know that the very specific words that he uses in the structure of this sentence is very clear. He is presenting a deep and powerful truth for us to take a look at. So let's go uh, word by word here, just, just a few of these words. First he said, consider. Consider. Now just the fact that he said consider means that he's wanting us to think deeply. That word means to think profoundly. And in the context of suffering, James is inviting us to think deeply when we suffer. 
And this was a, a, an early church that was suffering under persecution and the injustice of persecution. Families being ripped apart. Um, church leaders being hauled outside the city and stoned to death. Uh, they were suffering in poverty because as a Christian, they had trouble getting jobs, in, in, especially in Jerusalem. They were totally outcast. And so there's sufferings of all kinds. And he says, think deeply when you suffer. And so he didn't want them to just sort of pass by it. In fact, the opposite. He's saying, think deeply. And, and as you think, make a decision about your suffering. He says, consider it pure joy. As you think about your suffering, consider it pure joy. Now, we might think, wait a minute. That seems thin. You mean I'm just supposed to be happy in the face of suffering? Is this skipping through the meadow when, I'm, when my life is falling apart? No, it's not. That word joy is not is not the kind of thing we would call happiness. It's not that emotional sort of pleasure. That is not what he's talking about. He's talking about a deep underlying journey, a profound journey of meaning and life and beauty that is happening underneath the pain and struggle of suffering. He's saying, think deeply and profoundly about your struggle. Consider it or count it or determine it joy. There's a joyful journey, a deep and meaningful journey happening in the middle of your suffering. Consider it pure joy when you encounter um, various trials, or as some translations put it, when you encounter trials of many kinds. Now, first of all, he says, my brothers, which means, hey, we're in this together. We're walking together. And again, if we know James' um, way of life, he is together with those who suffer. So he says, we're in this together and we suffer together whenever we encounter trials. Now, the word he uses for encounter is to bump into. It's almost this accidental encounter with trials or suffering. It means an unwelcome, unanticipated, or senseless struggle. It just comes out of nowhere. It's sort of like if you were walking down the street and you turned a corner and you bumped right into somebody. That's the nature of suffering. It is nonsensical. It is seemingly random. It is oftentimes absurd and inexplicable. You just run into suffering. And we're not talking about the kind of suffering that we put upon ourselves. We make a dumb decision and we suffer the consequence. That's not what we're talking about. James is talking about suffering that you bump into from the outside. He says, whenever you encounter that kind of suffering, meaning you're going to encounter it. I haven't suffered intensely, but I guarantee you I will. Unless I die instantaneously in a fiery crash of some poor, uh, <laughs> you know, at some point, I'm going to suffer. I am very likely going to lose somebody I deeply love. I am very likely going to struggle physically. It's whenever you run into suffering that comes from the outside. And that word trials, this is kind of interesting, kind of funny, that word trials actually has its root in the same word that talks about pirate attacks. Pirate attacks. So James gives this wonderful imagery of being attacked at random from the outside like pirates attacking a ship. So the imagery that's, that, that's in the background of this passage is, is you know, you're sailing on the ocean blue. Uh, it is, um, you know, this wonderful journey and the seas are calm and the weather is good, right? Then all of a sudden you look at your telescope and there are ships coming from out of the blue. And that's what it means to come really from the ocean, out of the, out of the blue sky, right? They're coming out of the blue sky and they're coming towards you. And as they get closer you realize that these are attacking ships, and then before you know it, you are absolutely under attack. You are being bombarded, and yes, that is from Pirates of the Caribbean. You are being bombarded from both sides, right? You are besieged. You are under attack. Life is being robbed from you. This is the imagery that James has. This is life. 
you're cruising along, out of the blue, you randomly run into an attack. And for some of us, it's an attack from all sides. An attack from all sides, and it seems random. It seems random. Now, when we have friends or loved ones who suffer, we want to bring them help. And we want to bring them help by being there. And so many of us rally around our friends and loved ones who suffer, and we want to be right there, and we want to bear their burdens and hug them and cry with them. And then we also want to comfort them by the things that we say. But, you know, a lot of us don't know exactly what to say. A lot of us struggle with what to say. And and so we say things that are intended to help, but they may not actually help. So I I want to run through some of the things that we say, especially in the church, that in fact may trivialize suffering and may rob us of that pure joy in the midst of suffering that God offers us. Here's a list of things um, I'm going to encourage us not to say when trying to help somebody who struggles. Number one, don't say something good will come out of it. Now, there in all of these are some are Bible verses that we kind of cherry pick phrases from, but, but they're misplaced here. Something good will come out of it. Now, I understand why we would say that. I have said this myself, you know, in, in times past. You're trying to turn a very negative thing into some kind of positive thinking, right? Oh, something good will come. The problem is, is it trivializes the suffering right now because we're thinking, oh, hey, listen, this suffering is going to be outweighed by something good. You'll see, right? Well, this is something very terrible, and there very well may not be an equal and opposite good. Something else we say. God won't give you more than you can handle. Now, some of you might say, well, that is a promise in the Bible, right? Well, yeah, but think of timing, right? Timing is everything. There's a time and a place for this. If there is somebody in front of us who is suffering intensely and we say God won't give you more than, than you can handle, it lays a burden on them. And uh, this just happened yesterday. Yesterday, I call up a, a lady who is, is struggling just to check up on her, and I said, hey, how are you doing? And her voice went silent immediately, and she starts crying immediately, and she says, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And she says, I just feel like life is totally caving in, and every single day I just feel lost. And then somebody who's trying to help told me that God won't give me more than I can handle. She just said it yesterday to me. And she says, I can't handle this. See what we've done? We've now laid guilt upon her and failure upon her. Listen, if somebody believes the world is falling in on them and if they really feel as though they can't handle it, what do we need to do? We need to just say, I'm sorry and I'm here for you and I will try the best that I can to be a rock for you. That's all. Just just empathize and just bear that burden. Don't lay any more burdens like, hey, you've got to be strong. You've got to be tough. Uh, You know, God won't give you more than you can handle. If somebody feels like their world's falling apart, just be there with them as it falls apart. Another thing I would encourage you not to say is, be strong, things will get better. First of all, when somebody is feeling very weak, just share their weakness. Don't encourage them to be better, right? That's, that's a very religious thing to do. Hey, be better, get over this, right? Move on. No, we don't need to move on. We just need to hurt right now. And then to say things will get better may not be true. I know we like positive thinking, but listen, this is not an Eastern mystical, you know, gathering. This is the church of Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as, as, as you know, these thought forces where positive thinking goes up into the, uh, you know, the force of the cosmos and the cosmic force takes all the positive thinking and pours it positively on somebody we're thinking about. That, that's just not the reality, right? Things may not get better. Don't say God is good and has only good plans. 
Is God good? What's the answer? Yes. Does he have good plans? What's the answer? Yes. Is everything we experience good? No. Good job, guys. <laughs> this was the best answer of all the services today. God is good, yes, and his ultimate plans for us are good, but not everything we go through is good. Some things we go through are just flat evil and nasty and wrong, and we just need to sit in that and own that and live in that without any platitudes, right? No platitudes. Do not say God is trying to teach you something through all this. That's a horrible thing to say. That means implicitly it's your fault, right? You need to learn something. So God put this terrible tragedy on your life so that you will learn something. That's really a terrible thing to say. Don't say this is happening for a reason. Again, that trivializes pain. And I want you to, to take this and put it in, in your worst fear. What is your worst fear? Where would you, how would you suffer the most? What would happen in your life where you would suffer the most? You know, for, for me, it's a diagnosis, a terrible diagnosis for one of my kids right? Uh, that's, the, that's the thing I've got in my head that would be the absolute worst thing. And then somebody says, this is all happening for a reason? Huh? It, would that reason somehow make this situation good or right? We've got to think through these things. Don't worry, God is in control. Again, that's, that's kind of a religious platitude. All this is well intended. I have said all of these things a lot in the history of my life, Right? We want things to be turned for good in somebody's life. Oh, don't worry, God's in control. Well, listen, if you're dealing, for example, with uh, the sickness of a child, a terrible sickness uh, with your child, you're going to worry, right? What are you supposed to do, right? Oh, well, it's, all, it's all good. Oh, it's fine. You know, Jesus saves. I don't What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to hurt and we're supposed to worry. And yes, God may be in control, but now's the time for us to, to have our heart broken and yearn you know, for the well-being of our child. This is the worst one. Have faith in God's promises to heal. That's the worst one. When my daughter's a little older, I'm going to start choking people out when they say this. Because when I go to prison for it, I'm not going to ruin anybody's life. I'm just going to make a point, right? So I'll just be in jail for a night or two. That's all. It's no big deal. But I'm getting really tired of this. And I'm going I'm to make it really <laughs> real. There are some people who say this kind of thing in town, pastor types who say this kind of thing in town. And, and there was uh, one instance here recently where uh, somebody that, that I love very much was told this, have faith in God's promises to heal. And I did her funeral. And I approached this pastor and I said, I'm burying the people you're saying this to. Do you understand what you're doing? Do you understand what you're doing to these people and to these families? When you say God promises to heal, everybody wants to hear that. Everybody wants to hear that. So they go to their, you know, their prayer rooms, they go to their knees and they beg God, I am praying in faith, heal my loved one. I believe what you say, God, I will not doubt. I am claiming your promise to heal. Here's the problem, God never promises to heal. He never does. In fact, in the scripture, we see a lot of people who are struggling and a lot of people who are sick and a lot of people uh, whose lives are, are ushered into the presence of the Lord. We see that all the time. God never promises to heal. There is a healing of the world that God is involved in, and there will be an ultimate healing in, in eternity to come. But right now, God does not make promises to heal. 
Now, there are extraordinarily rare instances where we could say he does, but that is not the norm. And so when, when we lay upon somebody, help claim God's promises to heal, we are laying a, a rock around their necks because they will go to God in fervent prayer and they will believe God's promises. And then when they lay their loved one into the arms of God, who failed? Well, if you can't bring yourself to think God failed, that means you failed. You prayed wrong, you didn't pray enough, you didn't pray in faith, you doubted, you did something wrong and now your loved one is, is with the Lord. And you heap burn upon yourself. Or if you say, hey, I prayed in faith, then God failed. This whole Christian system is a failure and I am out of here because what kind of God would pull back on his promises? Nothing good comes out of this. Nothing good comes out of that. One thing I would encourage us not to say, and this is a little bit of a lighter weight. That was a heavy one. This is a lighter weight thing. I just said this this last week, right? So (laughs) this is something we say all the time. Hey, call me if you need anything. Now, that's very well intended, for sure. And we mean it. We are sincere. Hey, call me. You're struggling. I, I know you're going to have some needs. Call me if you need anything. Well, the reality is they're not going to call, right? They're hurting. They're wounded. They might feel lonely. They're grieving, whatever it is. They're, they're not going to probably pick up the phone and call you because they don't want to impose on you, right? They're, they're, they're grieving, maybe sometimes quietly. They're not going to call. So I would just encourage us to, to rephrase that in a way that's a little more specific, and might actually be um, uh, helpful in some ways. So for example, if somebody is struggling, maybe with the loss of a loved one and really suffering, we could say, hey, you know, my family or my small group would love to provide meals for you and your family for a week. Um, if, if, those, um, if you're not, your meals aren't taken care of this week, maybe we'll take week two or week three. You see how that's an offer of, of real help. Or maybe you could say, hey, me and the boys want to come over to your house next Saturday. We want to mow your yard, you know, pick the weeds, kind of get everything all dialed in you know, with your sprinkler system so you don't have to worry about the outside. It's a very specific offer of help. Now, they might reject it and say, no, I have a service or whatever, but we're offering specific ways to help just with an open hand. Hey, we'd really like to help in specific ways. Uh, one thing you might say is, hey, um, we want to... Um, to, to, to purchase a house cleaning service to just deep clean your entire house, right? We know kind of uh, maybe clean up may not be a priority as you just you know, are dealing with all that you've got to deal with in your life right now. We're going to send a cleaning service your way. Don't offer to actually clean their house. They don't want you all up in their business, right? So uh, it's kind of awkward to have somebody you know actually clean your house. It's like, no, nah, that's not good. But to pay for somebody to come and clean your house all day long, bring strangers into my house to clean my house. There's a family in church who did that for Jenny and I. We weren't even struggling. We were just kind of in a busy zone. And they just said, hey, we want to bless you by paying for a house cleaner to come by. And we're like, whatever, okay, go for it. It was like one of the greatest gifts we've ever gotten. It's awesome, right? It's super, super cool. So, you know, we want to help when people are struggling. And sometimes we say things that just aren't really helpful. Um, let's, let's try to turn this around so that instead of trivializing suffering, we can really say, we're going to walk with you in the depth of your suffering. We're going, to, we're going to suffer with you. We're going to bear those burdens. We're going to take those burdens from you and walk with you. We're not going to just say, hey, get over it or just be strong or just have faith or just kind of get through it. You know, We're going to say, we're going to walk this journey together. It's going to be a deep and profound journey. There's a, um, a family that's been a part of our church for quite some time and um, the wife, uh, many years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago, was diagnosed with a debilitating disease. And for the last decade, she has been disabled, 
fairly severely disabled, and she needs help every single day. And she has a timeline for her longevity. The doctor said, you know, she has maybe three or four years. And so her and her husband, the love of her life, I mean, they have this storied, uh, you know, tale of love. And, and they are truly partners in every sense of the word. Uh, they have a plan. You know, for these next three or four years, they have a plan. And uh, just this last uh, Christmas time, he was diagnosed with cancer, an aggressive cancer. And just like that, he was gone. And she's left by herself. She has a plan for three or four years. And he was her partner, her soulmate, her caretaker. And instantaneously, he's just gone. And she's crushed, absolutely crushed. How could this possibly be? And uh, I was asked to lead the memorial service. And, and uh, so I, I went to the, uh, the chapel out of town. And as I drive up to the chapel, it's surrounded by fire trucks and, and ambulances and and I, my heart just sank because I'm thinking, there's no way. There's just no way anything could have happened in there. And maybe it's some, I don't know, maybe they're, they're joining in the funeral service. I have no idea. But I walked in, and, and sure enough, there's the wife, and her leg is broken. It was the first time she got out without the help and the assistance of her husband. And she can't walk very well. And sure enough, first time out of the house, right before the funeral service, she falls in the chapel and breaks her leg. And so we're all surrounding her and just, you know, should we do the service? And she says, she's crying in grief and she's crying in pain and she's crying in uncertainty. And she says, we are going to do this memorial service. And it was a very beautiful service as, you know, she's surrounded by these, you know, medics who are trying to care for her and they want her in the hospital as soon as possible. And she's just saying, we are going to do this service. And you look at a story like this, and maybe you know people who just seem to have suffering upon suffering upon suffering, and, and these are good people. This woman is the sweetest person you'd ever know. Uh, her family sacrificed a lot for the defense of our country, a military family. They help mentor young people. I mean, they are selfless and kind and generous people. You can't ask for better people. And so the question is asked, why, can, why does this happen? How can it be that a good God would allow suffering like this? Now, I'm not going to answer that question with a nice, tidy little bow. I don't think it's that kind of question, but I do want to spend a couple of minutes on that question. And I just want us to think through something. Maybe you've thought about it before, maybe you haven't. But there's a passage in Genesis chapter 1 that I think pretty well says it all. It says this, that God created man in his own image, male and female. God decided, and I'm just going to put it in these terms, God decided to have children. He decided to have sons and daughters. We are sons and daughters of God. And when God made us, he made us in his image. He made us very much like himself, similar to a father or a mother who has a child. Our children are made in our image. They have our likeness, right? God, our heavenly father, did the same thing. He made male and female on this planet in his image, very much like himself. God blessed them and said to them, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule. This is very powerful. God made us very much like himself and gives us delegated dominion over this world that he loves so much. We have delegated dominion over the world. Now, part of being made in God's image is that we know both good and evil. God knows both good and evil and is all good. He made us in his image very much like God. We know both good and evil and we choose what? We choose evil. Now, there's good in us, but very often we choose evil. All of us at some point, choose evil. If we are proud, arrogant, self-centered, if any words out of our mouth have been hurtful to people we love, 
our spouse, our children, coworkers, if we've gossiped about anybody, if we've lied about anything, if we have harmed anybody so that we would get ahead, if we'd lied so that we would kind of get our way, I mean, all of us have a tendency towards evil. So God gave delegated authority over this world that he loves so much to us, his sons and daughters made in his image. And so when we choose the path of evil, and all of us at some point do, this world that we have dominion over is broken. That's the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. This world is a broken world. Actually, it's the story of Genesis 1 through uh, 11. This is a broken world, and we broke it. It is spiritually broken. There's a darkness that prevails in this world so that people, whether they are, are doing well and, and, and uh, living rightly or living wrongly, this world just hits people sideways. People are attacked in many ways. Even if their lives are good, this world is broken. We live in a broken world, and that's just the reality. Stuff just happens. Inexplicable, nonsensical, absurd things just happen in this broken world because it's broken. And some of us might say, well, can't God just eradicate evil on the face of the earth? If he's the ultimate sovereign, even though he's delegated uh, authority over the earth to us who broke this world, can't he just say, hey, we're going to start over, we're going to wipe out all the suffering on the earth? If God were to wipe out all suffering on the earth, if he were to wipe out every single source of pain on the earth, how many of us would survive it? Haven't we said things that are hurtful to others? Haven't we caused pain in the lives of others by selfishness, pride, by, by words that just come out of our mouth that are hurtful? If God eradicated suffering on the face of the earth, there's not one of us who would survive that. It's, um, it's sort of like parenting, right? God's a heavenly father and, it's, and he gave birth to creation. Mankind made in his image. So the metaphor is there and the metaphor is biblical. God is a father. And so when a husband and a wife, when a man and a woman decide that they're going to give birth to a child, and I'm just going to have really raw language here, right? No, no cursing, but we're going to get really raw here. When we decide to give birth to a child, when we have a child, we open up a grave. Have we thought about that? It's pretty serious stuff, but it's true. Now, when we're 20-something and excited about having children, we may not think that deeply at the time, especially when we're making the baby. Oh, my gosh, we're not thinking that deeply at the time. But when we have a child, we open up a grave. It's just the way it is. When we have a child, we guarantee pain and suffering in that child's life. It's guaranteed. Is there one child who has ever lived who has not experienced pain or suffering? Not one. So when we have a child, we bring that child into a very risky environment. We do that. We are responsible for it. Does that make us evil? What's the answer? No. It doesn't make us evil because we have a child and open up a grave. It doesn't make us evil if we have a child and, 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 and they endure pain and suffering. It's just the way it is. The reason why we have a child is because there is a deeper joy there in living and loving because real life only comes when there's risk. Real love only comes in the midst of failure and suffering. If, if somebody lives a life that's free of suffering, they're not really living, and they're not really loving. So the mystery of life is, and the mystery of love is a mystery of pain and suffering. You cannot have real life, and you cannot have real love unless there's a risk of disappointment in failure and suffering. It's just the way it is. It's mysterious, it's hurtful, and there are no clean and easy answers, but it's just the way it is.
So there are two options. You know, as a parent, you can say, hey, well, I don't want my child to suffer, so I'm gonna bring my child into this world, but I'm gonna ensure with everything I have that they do not suffer. I'm gonna meet every need. I'm gonna meet every want. I'm gonna protect their lives so that they never experience any pain. You know what you're doing there? You're raising the devil, the devil. Kids who are raised where every need is met and every want is met and and they are so protected that they don't suffer at all, that's the devil. And you don't want those snot-nosed little brats in society. I mean, they're terrible, terrible creatures, right? The, The deeper the experience of life, which includes pain and suffering and loss, the deeper that experience, the more beautiful the life. You talk to somebody who's really suffered and that life is meaningful, maybe scarred, Maybe lingering hurts, but that's a deep life. That's a beautiful life. People who don't suffer, they don't struggle. They just kind of skate and overprotected and overprovided for. Their life is just so paper thin. It's not real life, and it's not real love. So we can choose to protect our child, or we can choose to have no children at all, right? In some families, that's the right decision for them for whatever reason. They decide not to have children, but that wasn't the decision God made. God decided to have children. God decided in his sovereign providence to have children, to have sons and daughters, to have us. And he decided there's a greater good there despite the pain in this broken world that he certainly knows we will endure. He says there's a greater experience here. It's an experience of relationship and it's an experience of love. And something happens in that. Something happens in that experience of suffering. And it's clear as we wrap up here in James 1, 3 through 4. It says this, the testing of your faith that comes through suffering, the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. James was the apostle who who went after those who were suffering and suffered with them. And he knows that people who really struggle are people who are mature not lacking anything. James knows that these people who really struggle and endure not because they've been given religious platitudes, they endure because other people are walking alongside of them and saying, we're gonna cry with you and we're gonna struggle with you and we're gonna cry out to God with you and we're gonna doubt with you and we're gonna hurt with you and we are walking together as a community and we're gonna watch what God does in us to deepen us, to have a meaningful experience among us and watch strength grow and watch love grow. We're heading up to a springtime and for those of you who might be gardeners, um, you know the drill, right? You gotta get out there and gotta pull all the weeds and you gotta till all the soil and work stuff into the soil and you're digging and you're thrashing and you're tilling and then you plant this ugly old seed and then you're, you know, you're fighting you know, bugs and, and you're watering and you're toiling and you're sweating so that one day, something very beautiful and very fruitful will rise up. That's kind of the nature of life. Life is oftentimes a battle, it's a struggle, and there's a lot of tilling and churning going on. And what James 1 says is just watch, just be patient. Something beautiful is gonna emerge. A stronger you is gonna emerge. A more complete and mature you is going to emerge. Not by platitudes and religious nonsense, but a community of love that walks together. And isn't that what Christ did for us? I mean, Christ didn't call us up to him in perfection. He actually came down in our imperfection and he suffered and struggled among us. He experienced loneliness. He experienced abandonment. 
He experienced rejection of all kinds. He experienced um, anxiety, even around his faith as he's praying to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, God, take this suffering from me and drops of blood are sweating from his forehead. And God, his heavenly Father who loves him, says, no, I have called you to suffer, and he went to the cross for us. That's why the cross is the symbol of Christianity. The symbol of Christianity is a symbol of suffering and struggling. We follow the suffering Savior. We follow the suffering servant. He showed love by what he suffered on our behalf so that we would be forgiven and enjoy eternal life with him. And so when we encounter suffering, you know, we're not running after it, but when we encounter it, we can be strong. And we can endure by God's grace and by love from one another. We're going to close in one final song, and it's going to be a little bit of a different experience for us here as we close. I'm just going to ask you to remain seated for this final song. It is a deep and meaningful song around the idea of suffering and God's grace in our life, and it just sort of sits in that place. It's about five, six minutes long. But uh, I'd rather, uh, as you go through this, I'd rather us be in a spirit of prayer. You know, don't necessarily sing this song. Just maybe hear the words and be in a spirit of prayer. Whether your eyes are open or closed, just pray for those who are suffering. If you're suffering, feel free to pray for you and your family. If you don't know somebody who's suffering, pray over this list that I told you earlier about the people in our world that struggle. Pray for them. We're also going to have staff pastors, volunteer pastors, and small group leaders who uh, are going to be around the perimeter here. And they're just going to stand there. If you want prayer... During the song, you can go to them and say, hey, will you pray for me? Maybe after the song, feel free to stick around, go to them, say, will you pray for me? We want to bear those burdens with you. So let's sit in this song, let's sit in a spirit of quiet, and let's pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling, and let's enjoy the presence of God, the deep and powerful presence of God in our lives.